Jackson Brown, uh, Late for the Sky. We played a song from that album last week. I may play a few more because it's just a great album that where are you going to hear it these days? A lot of people don't even know who Jackson Brown is, who they don't know anything about him. There is such a lack of good information these days. That's why you know you listen to us, because we provide you with curated information. Now, who are the curators? Well, we are. That gives us the power. No, seriously. I just, I could do a radio station totally dedicated to old music like this that nobody listens to anymore. And I don't know, we might have 10 listeners, but we should have 2 million anyway. All right, I got Mike Johnson here, and we're going to get into uh, talking about what's been going on in the markets, and it's not pretty. Uh, It's creative destruction. Uh, The meltdown in stocks causes opportunities. The dislocation in bonds and other kinds of securities uh, the, the surge in interest rates, you know, has caused 
all kinds of things that have to be repriced and reconsidered in light of of what's going on. So you wanted to kind of talk a little bit about some things from the past because yeah. you've been in this business long enough to know that history kind of repeats itself. Not exactly. Looks looks similar. Certain things do. Certain it's things. It's never exactly the same because if it were, you could say, oh, you know, you'd have a vaccination against it. But, uh, you know, we don't ever completely comprehend everything that's going on. But as we are in this business longer, we do begin to get historical models that we can work with even if they're just in our head, because sometimes it's like walking around a corner, the last place you got bit by a dog and you kind of remember what that felt like. And everything in your body is, you know, sort of gauging (laughs) what does this corner look like? It's very weird, but it's, it's a traumatic experience and you remember those. So go ahead. So wanted to look back, further back in history um back in 1977 so peter lynch uh ran the fidelity magellan fund from 77 1977 to 1990 and i just want to say peter lynch would be the first kind of rock star yeah fund manager that we ever really had right yeah We've seen a number of them since then. Most recently, like uh, Kathy Wood uh, with the ARC funds. Um, but he was he was kind of the rock star of the time. Uh, the the fund, which is a, an open end mutual fund, uh, had an average annualized return of twenty nine percent over those thirteen years, and I mean, which is a, a phenomenal return. It was more than the S and P five hundred. Um, That's like a baseball pitcher who wins. 25 games a year for for 13 years in a row. I mean, it's just not done. That's right. And and he was pretty young at the time, too. Um, I think he he may have been in his early 40s, maybe. Um, He was pretty young. Uh, But the interesting thing, the average investor in the fund, so the fund itself averaged 29%. uh, The average investor only made about 7% a year, uh, on average annualized. So huge discrepancies. Um, There's a few reasons for that. Um, I I think the two biggest reasons, much like what we saw with the ARC funds, is when he became the rock star manager, you had – money chasing performance so you had more money coming in had to invest it and but on top of that because the the fund actually continued to do well even with the new money coming in so what it tells you is the average investor in the fund was trading in and out of the fund they, they were basically treating the fund like a commodity a trading vehicle uh, so they were getting in getting out and inevitably I mean, human nature, emotions lead you right off the cliff. Inevitably, they would buy, and then when it goes down, they sell it. And so if they would have just held on, ridden through volatile periods, it would have averaged 29% instead of 7%. You know, because of that behavior, Fidelity instituted a sales charge 
because uh, it was a pure no-load fund when it began, which means you can get in, get out, get in, get out, and there are no sales fees. And because of that, Fidelity said, this this is not a good thing. Hmm. We're going to institute a sales charge. It was like 2%, and yeah. I think it went away after 90 days or something. But you, Interesting. Know, you, get, a, you get dinged getting out. Yeah. If uh, if you started uh, jumping in and out now, I think you could trade freely within the Fidelity group of funds, but you couldn't just cash out and do something yeah. else with it. Interesting. Um, so anytime you get into a, a, a period of volatility like we've been in this year, I mean, yes, or uh, this week uh, you had on uh, Wednesday the market sell off about twelve hundred points. The Dow was down about twelve hundred points, um, which is I mean it was a big down day, but it basically undid about the three previous trading days. Uh, the market was up about nine hundred points the three previous days, and then it was down twelve hundred points on Wednesday. Um, lots of volatility. Uh, now the VIX, uh, which is the volatility index, um, has gotten higher, but it's it's still not reached the levels anywhere near what it reached in uh 2020 during the covid uh lockdown um but anytime you have this kind of volatility volatility in stocks volatility in bonds uh massive volatility in bonds this year the inclination of any investor um doesn't matter how long you've been doing it um it, it the emotions kick in and you become more inclined to try to time the market, uh, get in, get out. Um, when, if you're a long-term investor, and this, we're getting to put out our newsletters, and I've, I've had this conversation with a number of clients recently. Being a long-term investor doesn't necessarily mean a particular length of time you're holding a stock. I mean, right. the being a long-term investor is a mindset. Yes, um, and the time, the holding period, is more of a byproduct of that uh, because the mindset of a long-term investor is you know over a period of time you're going to have downturns in the market. You're going to have things that happen. Um, when those things happen, that's when you have to go back and test your investment thesis first. You can't just blindly hold on to something because – Time, in and of itself, you have to be very careful of when somebody says to you, don't worry about it, we're long-term investors, or don't worry about it, you're a long-term investor. Be real careful of that because that can be a mask for complacency. Yep. Um, because time, in and of itself, won't fix a bad investment. If, yep. if, if, there's, if, if, you're, if it's a company, bad management, bad business – Time isn't going to fix that. Time's. Let me just say, uh, yeah. you brought up Peter Lynch. Yeah. So Peter Lynch was an interesting guy. He wrote a couple of books. Uh, I think one was called One Up on Wall Street and yep. then maybe Winning on Wall Street or another one. They were really seminal kind of books. Very easy reads. But um, he kind of introduced the idea of investing in things you know about. And he would look at products that were around him. He would look. He didn't approach 
investing uh, sort of like a quant or some guy behind the screen. He looked at the world and he said, where's something out there, you know, that I can put, put money into. And, uh, he would just, uh, buy things that, uh, looked interesting. He wasn't, I don't think he gave the, uh, stocks that he bought near as much attention as say Warren Buffett would number one, because he might have four or 500 stocks in the portfolio, whereas Buffett might have 18 or something or or 20. And therefore he never did the kind of deep dive, but his investing style was fascinating. It was full of exuberance and interest in the world. Uh, he really, he marketed well, for the fund that he was in, he really became the face of the Fidelity uh, investment lineup, yeah. which uh, has since you know gotten huge. It's not near as big as, say, Vanguard or or, or BlackRock, but uh, anymore. But you know, Peter Lynch made it interesting to invest in stocks, and I still think. It's an interesting thing to do. Mm-hmm. I think, and Missy, I want to bring you into this. Uh, your uh, late father-in-law, Matt Clifton, was a great stock picker, and he was with Hilliard Lines, and he was just, Mac was interested in how the world worked. You know, you, you, you would talk to him about stuff, and then there were certain things he had more interest in than others. One of them was energy. He was from eastern Kentucky. He'd been around energy production all his life. He was interested in oil and gas. Uh, some other things he was interested in were restaurant stocks. He liked uh, different ones. Rallies was one he was, he was fascinated in. But I think it requires a fascination with how stuff works works now would you not agree with that or do you have any opinion on it oh completely agree mac Mac innately loved to get to know people and he had a he had a just a real interesting sense of of taking stock of someone and then his approach appealed to the best that they offered that's a fascinating take so i'll give you a little example and i've told you before his son uh dan and, and David, my brother, and I, were, we were all very, very close friends at one time. I mean, really, almost like brothers. And uh, we went to this camp in North Carolina called Mondamon, and Dan went there too. And they had a father-son hike at the end of the camp that was like a backpacking three-nighter. I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't any one night out. I mean, they were doing some backpacking. They were out for three nights. So Mac came up and did the father-son hike. I never would have thought of Mac as a backpacker. You know, he's a guy that liked the creature comforts and kind of thing. But he drove me home. I could, he had rented some big van, and I mean, he had the air conditioning. It was about 60 degrees in that thing. It was just, it was like a damn, uh, uh, you know, freezer car. The whole way back, he said, man, I love this backpacking. He was planning three backpacking trips. You know, it, it's just like he just lived large and bit off big chunks of stuff. And and so, um, you know, uh, 
it does, in my opinion, to do well in this business, you got to have an inquiring mind. You have to be interested in how things work. Peter Lynch was really interested in how things worked. Right. Well, and to back to being a long-term investor, the only way that you can hold uh, maintain, you know, maintain a conviction about something is to understand it. Um, you know, have you've done a dive into the business, into the people, you have confidence in the management in that business, you, you know, the financials. So having conviction leads to having confidence to hold through volatile exactly. periods. That's the only way. Yeah. I, I don't think you can just read some research and kind of be cool with it. Because when you start getting shook, you better have something to fall back on. Right. And, and I think knowing people, knowing as much as you can about a company is, uh, is, is so important. Because, you know, that's how you, you know, develop the essence of it. Companies like people have a form of what I would call DNA. They mm -hmm. have almost like a genetic code. Uh, there's a heredity thing going on. There's, you know, what I would call uh, uh, a historical memory in, right. embedded in. And, 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 and I know how our little company has developed um, in terms of the way that we've studied uh, certain things that we got interested in that led us to other things that led us to other things. And we've used those models like Charlie Munger talks about to, you know, the, a model that we learned from this company, we might apply it to another company. And you begin to get a sense of how things work in the world. Right. The, the study of, uh, stocks in companies is closely akin to the study of economics Economics is the idea of how goods and services get allocated throughout and how you create and destroy things. And uh, if you deny the laws of economics in the way you invest, you will not be successful. The only way you really learn them is to observe them. And that's true with anything. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to have a business degree. You can be a, an English major like me. It's going to take you a little longer, but when you learn it, you'll learn it. Right. Well, and you, you touched on economics. You know, we, we're talking about investing in companies, the actual investment process. You've got the, the economic side of it, and then you've got the other dynamic, which is the portfolio management side of it. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not just picking this one stock or that one stock or not buying this other it's how the portfolio is put together to accomplish our clients goals and to have the different complementary pieces of the portfolio right. working together right and so like with any plan everything with investing that's what makes it so fascinating the the, the whole process is fascinating is 
how everything is, is intertwined. You have the economics, you have the investment, you have the portfolio management, you have the client with the client's goals, the client's uh, specific needs or um, desires for the money. Uh, so for a, an actual long-term investment plan, all of those things need to be working together and as you know talking to each other right you can't do it in a vacuum right you cannot administer top down sort of uh cures for what ails the client financially that's right and the other thing you've got to do is realize that investing is what it is it's not going to solve all of anybody's problems. And, and, and so therefore, you know, there's other aspects of someone's financial, um, we got to go to a break. No, we got a minute. Aww. I'm going to start playing the thing here in a second. <laughs> uh, you, 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 you know, you, there's just things you got to pay attention to. All right, I'll start this. Well, I know it's a cliche to say that every client is unique, but that is true. Yeah, it is true. Everybody's got their own specific goals. Yeah. It doesn't go away. This is more of the Jackson Brown song. I hope that everybody's liking this. If you don't, don't email me. <laughs> no. You know, we know music is a part of this show. And we do our best to select what we think is good stuff for you guys to listen to. This is from, as I said, the album Late for the Sky by Jackson Brown. You're listening to the Tom Dupree Show. It's News Radio 630 WLAP. A reputation that and I had in the old well, what this Not guy best, John Vaughn, who was a friend of, of Hammers and a friend of mine, drunk. said that Hammers is just like Black Jack Davy, just exactly. <laughs> There's a song that just exactly describes Hammers. New Black Jack Davy coming running through the who down to the valley shady. He was letting sing to the wild woods ring and it charmed the heart of a lady. Charmed the heart of a lady. His lord returning late at night and he asked about his lady. The servant said she left you now when gone with Black Jack Davy. Gone with Black Jack Davy. Last night she slept on the fine feather bed beside her husband and baby. Tonight she sleeps on the cold, cold ground beside old Black Jack Davy. Side old Black Jack Davy. I didn't really uh, drink that much till uh, after one. Back on the Tom Dupree show, I'm a, there's a little story here. You get drunk and. Uh, this was a guy named Hamper Mackby. lived in Mont Eagle, Tennessee, which is right there on the uh, exit. Uh, if you're going from Nashville to Chattanooga, it's, I don't know, 80, 82, 83 miles kind of southeast of Nashville. You go up a mountain, Mont Eagle Mountain. It's about, I don't know 
about a thousand feet above the valley. And uh, Mont Eagle's there. And I went to school at a place called the University of the South Swanee, Tennessee, which is about 6.2 miles from that exit. The guy that you just listened to there, Hamper McBee, MC capital B-E-E. That name is, of course, Scott's. Uh, there were also Macbees over around Tuxedo, North Carolina, close to where I went to camp, and they had a general store. I don't know if they were related, but anyway, Hamper was a a, a moonshiner, and uh, you know that's what he did. Uh, he you know he went to jail several times, probably, and he was a pretty bad drunk himself, but he was very talented. He uh, did a couple of albums of him singing older folk songs. Many of these went back to Elizabethan England. Uh, He was somewhat affiliated with, there was a school there at Montego called the Highlander School. There was a guy named Guy Carawan, C-A-R-A-W-A-N, and they promoted uh, the folk songs of the uh, area. They also kind of had some, uh, left-wing political um, uh, uh, views that were not well accepted by some of the folks around there. But Hamper, I'll tell you a story. There was a uh, – so uh, a lot of us guys that went to school at Sewanee would go out to Mont Eagle uh, for a haircut at Sarge's, Sarge's Barbershop. Sarge, like Sergeant. I think it was about a dollar thirty to get your haircut, but it was about a dollar thirty's worth of haircut. <laughs> and uh, you know, don't don't ask for anything special. I mean, it's like putting a bowl on your head. But Hamper would be out there at times. Um, you know, he he wasn't afraid to work hard. And this came from a movie that you can find on various streaming platforms called Raw Mash. It was made back in the 70s. Uh, The Tennessee Arts Department or State of Tennessee Arts Department uh, financed it, and it was a a thing of him, and and I don't know if they financed it, but they did the project. Uh, It was actually done by a guy named uh, Saul Corine, K-O-R-I-N-E, and... uh, he makes a moonshine still in the movie. The Tennessee Division of Alcohol and whatever said, you can make the movie and make the still, but you got to destroy it. <laughs> so um, at the end of the movie, it shows them blowing up the still, and it's, it's, it's rather effective. But this... Uh, I can't explain to you the the feelings that uh, this stuff gives me of having you know been in school up on the mountain, especially in the fall, when the leaves would begin to change, and the air would get crisp, and you would see that. And there was a guy that would come from somewhere, I think North Carolina. He would have a pickup truck with a load of apples, pickup truck full of apples, and sell apples across from the chapel in bags and people would buy apples from, of course there were a lot of orchards up on top of the mountain 
going out towards a place called Tracy City. And they had remarkable uh, varieties of apples. That's where I found out about an apple called a Mutzo, M-U-T-Z-O. It's a Japanese apple. So, uh, you know, and I just feel like it's kind of our responsibility to keep alive things that we know from history that perhaps other people don't know. Uh, And it's... uh, I can only do my part. And uh, I've been blessed with given the ability to do this. And and so we talk about these things. Now, here's something that you're not going to get hear much about. An inconvenient truth about ESG investing. ESG investing is environmental, social, and governance. So it's it's basically investing woke style right mike uh surely you like this kind of thing right <laughs> i mean come on i remember get uh, with it i remember gosh i mean it was had to be five or six years ago kind of when the esg thing started oh, it's been longer than that but yeah it was, i remember when it started picking up steam yeah picking up steam. <clears throat> and but we, we we did a whole show on esg talking about how arbitrary it is you know how, how do you define success investing in esg or who know? do you how do you decide who gets through the screen right right and gets to be considered a type of company you would invest in right well over time um you know they have they've conducted a lot of studies on on esg funds um and the the Performance has not been good um, over a long period. You of know time. what? When it first started, like twenty years ago, it was great. Yeah, because nobody else was doing it. Yeah, and they were buying these things. And well, it's it, it's it's marketing. It's a money grab. It, it, it's it's marketing. It's a money. It's a way to gather assets by the fund companies because um, they hit on a nerve that people wanted to support, and they threw money at it. Um, but again, looking at it as an investor, you looking at it as, you know, your money going into something like this. Um, it, we talked the first, uh, half, you know, if somebody just says, well, don't worry, I'm a long-term investor, you know, make sure that they're saying that for the right reasons, that it's not masking complacency. The same thing with ESG. Um, they've, they've, some of the studies they've done have been real interesting um, on, the, on specific companies. When a company reports their earnings and their earnings are not good, they mention ESG. Um, and when because it, it gives they blame them, it on ESG. Uh, they they don't blame the whole thing on ESG, but they mention ESG a lot more. You know, because uh, we're we're moving in this direction. We we've, we've put these things in place. They talk about it more. They're talking. Oh, in other words, up. it's costing us to comply exactly with the stuff that everybody wants Be, us because to do. we're being more environmental, social. You know, the whole thing. So they talk really? about it more. But whenever I need they, to listen to more earnings calls, when they beat on earnings, they mention it much less. Um, it's the the whole thing is kind of it's it, it's it's really a farce because a good company 
if if they are trying to add value to the shareholders, they're going to be taking care of everything that ESG is yeah. talking about. Um, it's just you know again, it's it's the free markets work these things out over time. You know, being an ESG company does not. There have been study after study that an ESG company. Um, or that markets themselves as an ESG, or it's in, found in one of these ESG funds, uh, they actually don't score that much better than well, an S&P okay. 500. Let, let, let's put it this way. Yeah. When the thing started, uh, you know, 20 years ago, very few companies would be considered ESG. And because people started getting interested in them, they had some good performance. Now, BlackRock, which is, if not the largest money, ma- I think they are the largest now, hmm. uh, they are trying to require, because of Larry Fink, top-down, that we press everybody in our portfolio to be ESG. So now it's not a subset specialty. They're trying to turn the whole market into it. Now, I'll tell you something that's interesting. Any big company website that you look at today, Across there, they talk about this, they talk about that, and there's also a heading that says sustainability. Yeah. It has, when you dig into it, it has no meaning. Mm -hmm. It is daggone meaningless. Now, but everybody wants to say that we're focused on sustainability. And... My wife likes to listen to podcasts of people that do marketing stuff, and she's really learned a lot by doing it. But there was one young lady on there the other day, and what I would hear from her is, and so we do this and this and this, right? You know how a lot of, it's not just a female thing. I mean, men do it too, but you did it right, did it right. It's like, I'm right, right? Uh, da, 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 right, right. I'm right, right. And uh, then, then she'd say, and then we get to the sustainability piece. So there's a piece, and it's the sustainability thing. So which doesn't mean anything. Once they say sustainability, you can just turn your mind off because they're going to talk about something that has zero meaning, but it's virtue signaling, and it's basically saying. We're on that track, too. We like to be sustainable also, whatever that means. And, you know, it's just like uh, if you – well, today they had a vote in the House against anti-Semitism. It was one of those symbolic votes that means nothing. Everybody voted yes except for Thomas Massey. He's from Kentucky. He's not our district. Because what he was saying is, this is meaningless. Why vote on it? I'm sure good little Andy voted on it. But the point is, this has taken over big corporations because they're all political now in many ways. And, you know, uh, and it's small corporations too. And a lot of time and effort is being spent on stuff that doesn't mean anything. Well, and... What our job to our clients is, is to invest in a way that they can 
meet their goals, whatever those goals may be, as varied as they may be. Sustainable. (laughs) Their goals should be sustainable. That's exactly Uh, right. But so an ESG fund, what's it not going to have in it? Oil, energy. Um, What has been basically the only positive sector this year there's there's been a, a you, couple have you seen smalls. some of the articles where some of the big endowments are now starting to go yeah well uh, you know now that this thing's gone up 80 percent yeah let's think about buying exactly so it brilliant it, it all it all comes back to you know, in since the financial crisis you've had the market that's just been going going up generally speaking um Anytime that it looks like money's easy to be made, you get these kind of movements that come in. Well, now that we're having this volatility, now you're, that's when the rubber meets the road, so to speak. So, okay, it, it, do you want your financial future to be dictated on something as arbitrary as ESG, or do you want it to be based on financial analysis you know actually something that's going to make a difference for you because now's the time that the rubber meets the road during things during things that we're going through right now um and so you know it's it's so easy to to say offhanded well uh you know i want something that's esg it's like well that's fine i have no problem with with the sentiment there but make sure it's a good investment first and foremost. Um, and, and that's that's always what it should be about. Is it a good investment? Is it coming back to help you, the investor, the client? Um, not a, is it a money grab? Is it marketing? Whatever it may be. It all has to come back to you as the client, as the investor. So the older I get, the more I realize that studying English literature is actually helping me in this business. And one of the people that I studied, and I took a class from my good friend Dale Richardson, we studied Samuel Johnson, who was a a writer in the 1760s. And you couldn't pin him down because he he wrote a dictionary. He wrote these uh, columns. He wrote poems. He wrote... um, a critique of Shakespeare and the different uh, Roman and Greek uh, writers. And he always added his own particular uh, viewpoints on things, but he would describe nature. He didn't mean that going out and walking around in the woods. When he said nature, he meant human nature. He meant the way God basically created the universe to work. And like we were saying earlier, um, the, People try to superimpose on the investing process a form of adherence to uh, sort of posited ideas about how things work that are incompatible with the way things really work. And if you decide you're going to go in a, in a way that, that people tell you to go, but it hasn't been proven by thousands of years of doing stuff it's gonna fail so there's many things out there that are now you know at, at times being touted that are not gonna stand the test of time yeah. and therefore they won't be sustainable <laughs> um, so i think that an observation of nature is important 
to any kind of investing. Okay, where do we get all of our energy? We don't get it from windmills. We don't get it from solar panels. Those are helpful and can be done wisely, and they're getting better. But we typically get it from fossil fuels. Now, you could argue that might not be sustainable forever. And, yes, we do have issues with the long-term nature of it. But nobody wants to use nuclear power. Why? Because that's not in vogue. And that's maybe the next thing that, that could be used. Um, we don't like to pay attention to the nature God created. We would rather do the one that man creates. The man created one will fail. But if you pay attention to what's going on in the world, you might gain some wisdom. Right. Well, um, investing is is something that uh, over time you, you notice things, you know, commonalities. And right. if you're really paying attention, you notice mistakes that you make along the way. Um, it, it like um, – it, it, behavioral finance is, you know, it's, it's almost like a, a it, it's more psychological um, analysis, but um, anchoring is one of the things. And it, you, <clears throat> you, you take something that happened in the near past and you think that that event will repeat itself in the near future. Um, it could be, um, well, let's take the most recent thing. Um, tech, you know, with, with the tech route that's happened now, um, you could anchor to that and, and say, well, you know, tech has gone down some things, 70, 80, 90%. That's a horrible place to be. I am never buying tech again or, um, with, uh, energy in 2020, I am never buying energy. I'm never, it's when you say to yourself, I am never going to do this again because of that, that is a wrong way to invest because markets change, things change, and you have to be willing to uh, look at new information uh, that comes out. And that's that's one of the hardest things uh, on investing is you're constantly challenging yourself and sort of proven yourself wrong um where you're you're looking at what is coming up now and you, it, it tests things that you've seen in the past and you have to constantly reevaluate it's like okay am i doing this just because of my one experience what is the data now telling me recency and, bias recency biased yeah so i don't know there's no exactly right way to do all this stuff but the the thing is you got to pay attention what were we talking well, about back months ago that uh, the greatest retailer has no stores? That's Amazon. The, you know, the greatest uh, place to stay actually owns no hotels. That's Airbnb. You know, <laughs> Keep going. It's more hamper, Mike P. Love it. I came in the other night drunk as I could be. There's a horse in the state. So he's got this song. It's called Three, Three Cabbages. Come here, my little woman. And explain these things to me. It's, it's a folk tune. So, Hamper Mackby, guys, Mont Eagle, Tennessee. He's been gone for years. 
but he lives on in my heart. I came in the other night drunk as I could be. Let a cold You're listening to the Tom Dupree Show. Thanks for listening. It's News Radio 630 WLAP.